Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seed Camp and the rest of the Seed Camp team's here, Reshma, Dave, Tom, and we have some special guests coming from the United States, uh, Fred and Todd from Foley, Lardner, uh, amazing lawyers from the Valley. And what we want to talk about today is uh, flipping or perhaps uh, starting a company as a European or as somebody from uh, India or China and going to the United States and setting up shop there and some of the challenges involved going through that. So um, I'm going to step out of the room uh, for a little bit, uh, but uh, what I'd like to do perhaps is have you guys maybe go through some of the stuff that you typically, uh, Todd, go through with a, a founder who's considering this very, very first step in their company formation when they're from, let's say, France or from the UK. Sure. So thanks. Um, yeah, thanks, Carlos. <laughs> that's Fred. So, you know, when, when we have... Uh, uh, entrepreneur or a company come in and we, we meet with them, I think the biggest question is are they ready to flip to the U.S. or should it be something kind of less? So less meaning we, we just want to establish a U.S. presence, uh, but they're not really ready to sort of go all into the U.S., um, move their, their principal headquarters to the U.S., basically have their ownership sh uh, structure set up in the U.S. And that's the corporate dynamic. On the tax dynamic, we try to maintain flexibility and, and try to caution against flipping too early. Right. And, and, and in fact, um, to that end, I think it's uh, maybe in the popular media, uh, I think companies maybe read TechCrunch or hear from other founders and they think right away and they, they will often come into our office thinking, hey, you know, we, we we're ready to flip to a Delaware corporation. I guess maybe step back for a second and, and, and explain what a flip is. Um, I think when, uh, you know, the, the prototypical case would be literally you set up a, a U.S. subsidiary, you have a, the, the foreign parent, the, the original foreign co, and then you uh, flip the ownership so that um, where all the shareholders originally are, are in the foreign company, that's flipped such that the, the foreign company becomes the <coughs> subsidiary and the U.S. company becomes the parent. Um, so stated another way, uh, Todd's a corporate lawyer and Fred is a tax lawyer. Uh, the, the shareholders of the foreign company will just contribute their shares into the U.S. company and get back shares of the U.S. company. The U.S. company then ends up owning the foreign subsidiary entity. Right. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, as I said, when, when we have a founder come in, we're maybe shying away from that. Um, and, and Fred, I suppose, could, could explain maybe a little bit more, but it's, it's primarily the, uh, the the tax consequences and the consequences that the that the founders, the shareholders, are going to have to live with if they did end up becoming uh, a U.S. company. Because if things don't work out, you know, a year or a year and a half out, and the, and they've already flipped the company to the U.S., it's very difficult to get out of the U.S. So let's say that the European market, they, you know, they started in Germany or they started in Lithuania. Um, and that market's continued to grow and they've continued to do well. Maybe they've kept their R&D, which is often the case in the home country. They've continued to pursue that market. They've hit the U.S. They, they thought they were all in on the U.S. They decided to flip to the U.S. They wanted to make themselves sort of set up as, as, uh, uh, as best they could for U.S. Uh, institutional investment. But at the end of the day, they didn't show the market traction, which is going to be kind of a gating factor, I think, in, in ultimately getting... Uh, getting U.S. Uh, venture investment interest. Um, but let's say the, the home market has continued to do well. And so after a year, uh, maybe they get um, some traction with, uh, say, some, some London-based um, in investors. And they decide, you know what, after all, 
I think we want to take our marbles and go home, right? We want to go back to uh, to our home country. Right. So once you come into the U.S., it's it's awfully difficult to get out because any valuation increase on the on the way, uh, you know, after you've come to the U.S., uh, would then be a taxable event when leaving the U.S. So we 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 come up with uh, uh, there are several solutions to this. Um, you know, just stepping at back for a second, the initial um, thought process for a shareholder that is about to contribute or, or want to engage in a flip transaction is is understanding what the transaction consequences would be in their home country. So some some home country uh, tax regimes will allow that that share for share exchange, even though it's a it's a, an exchange for a foreign company. Uh, many uh, jurisdictions will tax that transaction. Um, you know, so so as I said, I think more often than not, when when we first engage with a company, we're going to set up something where they're either going to be a, a subsidiary of the foreign co, uh, or maybe a, a sister company, a brother sister company. But at the end of the day, we're leaving the business ownership um, in the foreign co, and we're leaving the the IP, um, the IP rights in the foreign co. And then we're just figuring out what the relationship is going to be between the new U.S. company and the foreign company. And more often than not, um, it's going to be some sort of license yeah. of, of the IP, keeping all of the IP rights for the most part in the uh, in the foreign company. And a very important point on the IP rights. And it's funny, Todd. We're going back and forth on corporate and tax, but I, I think this is it's a good it's a good back and forth. On the IP side, it's important not to bring. Uh, your IP automatically into the U.S. and or assign it or transfer it, leave it in the home country uh, initially because uh, uh, we spend a lot of time working with U.S. companies and transferring their IP rights outside the U.S. So if they if they're originated outside the U.S., then leave them there and do some planning around around uh, uh, licensing, as Todd just said, or uh, a smart. Uh, uh, transfer in, so maybe just the U.S. rights and leave the, the rest of the world rights outside the U.S. Talk for a second, Fred, about SaaS, because that's, that's always something I thought was kind of yeah. interesting and unique, the way that the tax gets imposed um, yeah, where services so, are provided. Yeah, very briefly on you know, software as a service providers, um, you know, the tax regimes are catching up with technology, but they're still behind. And so uh, even though you have a foreign entity that's uh, providing uh, uh, SaaS, uh, uh, a SaaS offering into the United States, you might be, become subject to tax in the U.S. even though you never had a presence there. And that's dependent upon if you're using a U.S. server and what type of functionality is, is being performed on that server. So we spend a lot of time, sometimes we might set up a, a U.S. affiliate or U.S. subsidiary just to house those, those server um, uh, function, that server functionality and or to, to run the U.S. business. But um, SaaS is complicated and definitely need, you need to talk with a, one of your corporate and tax advisors when you're doing that. And I thought that was pretty cool what you said the other day about Amazon. And being able to click. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazon. The, yeah. Amazon has uh, on their, you know, their web offering. I don't. This isn't a plug for Amazon, uh, but they they have smartly set up their global uh, uh, SaaS offering platform offering in order to uh, maybe not necessarily, maybe not expressly address uh, tax issues, U.S. tax issues or foreign tax issues. But you do have the functionality to choose where, what servers you're going to operate off of, uh, both regionally um, as well as locally. So it, 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 you can engage in tax planning using Amazon uh, uh, SaaS platform. 
Wow. Do, I mean, do you think um, the regulators will either do you, do you uh, see it, them having a problem with that, or it's a complete? I mean, it's it's partially because of speed. Uh, uh, it's partially because of you know you know VAT issues, possibly income tax issues, possibly uh, a number of different things, as well as business issues as well. I mean, cer certainly on the security and privacy side, there's issues that they have to deal with. But apparently, uh, you know, I, I think they're on the cutting edge of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is a day from CCAP here, and it's I mean it's fascinating to think there's so much to think about when you're a founder. You know, you're you're in the UK, you've you've had a hard enough time raising here or getting your first customer. So just taking a step back, what are the what are the forcing factors? What are the triggers for you to even want to consider this? So, I mean, if I think back to my own example of, you know, when I was at SoundCloud, we had significant traction there. We've been fundraising there, but, you know, we didn't we didn't make the move for at least two years to actually set up a company out there. Like, how, how would you think through it? What would your advice be to founders? When is when is the right time? Well, and Fred probably can, can, can weigh in maybe a little bit more clearly on this. I, I think in general, the way I look at this, um, a lot of founders, I think, make the mistake of deciding that the time is right for them to, to move to the U.S. to raise money. Um, and I think, obviously, it's, it's a great next step in terms of raising money. But uh, it can't, you know, you can't really lead with that as the idea. At the end of the day, you know, you may be able to come over and get some great meetings with some well-known investors and, and uh and I think founders get excited about that. But what I think they find out after three or four meetings is that these investors across the board are going to be looking for uh, for traction, right? Traction in the U.S. So just because uh, your product or you're killing it back home will not necessarily translate into a check by a U.S. investor because they're going to want to see whether the product's going to get traction in the U.S. So the first thing I would say is, you know, it, it, don't look to make your move to the U.S. simply um, because you think that you're you're running low on fun, on funds or, or you need to raise money from U.S. investors. I think the first thing you need to do is decide whether it's a good market. Um, and I think in a lot of cases it's it's a great market uh, and certainly a next step for that. But that should be I think most of the decision making should be around um, you know setting up some presence, expecting not to be raising money you know in the first six or twelve months after your move. Um, and make uh, making most of your planning around just trying to get uh, you know get some U.S. customers. But in terms, of, I, I guess I brought a bright line that can you know that can be also kind of tricky to decide when you know when is it time to set up a U.S. presence. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the fundamentals. Obviously, the stuff Todd is talking about is is probably more is is far more important, uh, kind of from an enterprise perspective and a an operational and business perspective. Some of the fundamentals are, you know, do I set up an entity or not, or if, what if I don't set up an entity? And, and you know, the tech side, you know, not to overstate it, but if, if you just come and set up in the U.S. without doing anything, then it creates, uh, you know, uh, compliance issues and, and tax issues for the foreign parent. Um, and, and so, you know, typically there's some very little thought that goes around that is needed, uh, but some thought should be done on, on you know, what you're going to do, uh, whether you're going to set up an entity, and, you know, what the entity choice are is. The typical choice for a foreign entity that we advise is, you know, a corporate entity just because of the way the U.S. tax rules work. A C-Corp. A C-Corp. Uh, but once you get past that, then it's all Utah. Well, I mean, it's – I think what we say is you want to avoid the foreign company – um, creating a taxable presence, right? So if you're based in the UK, um, where you don't want to go is that you have enough activities going on in the US. You know, maybe the founders are coming back and forth. Maybe you've engaged somebody from a sales channel perspective or something, either, even as a consultant, 
to uh, to try to make sales happen there. And and the the line I think you want to try to avoid crossing is the point where U.S. tax authorities decide that you've had enough presence there that that all your you know your U.S. source income for sure you're going to owe uh, U.S. tax on and you're going to have to file a U.S. tax return because once you're you're sort of within the net of the U.S. tax authorities that's not easy to get out of and so the idea I think with setting up um, a U.S. presence that's sort of short of flipping the company is the idea to to ring fence your activities in the U.S. and then only have that U.S. entity whether it's a, a sister company or whether it's a subsidiary of the of the foreign company that will be the only reporting entity so what you've done there is keep the the parent entity the foreign co sort of outside of the reach of US tax authority yeah but more importantly I think and, and I think you're gonna ask a question but uh, you know there's regulatory issues that people have to contend with there's IP issues as far as ownership and protection I mean those are the types of things that maybe you know th that's what I mean when I say then it's back to you because on the corporate and IP side that's that's really important to protect no. yeah Tom what, what, what question do you have I think um, it's you know it's really interesting to talk about the flip but also some kind of market trends are coming about now about people potentially not flipping and having a UK hold co US subsidiary and then opening themselves up to kind of what's trapped cash kind of acquirers and actually increasing the potential around people maybe opening themselves up to being acquired by US companies who have a lot of money and actually may want to buy overseas companies. Right. I mean, is that a kind of market trend which you're seeing a bit more? Well, I mean, we definitely talk to companies from the outside. Like, for instance, we have an Australian client who wanted to flip in air into, into the US and um, you know, but for the fact one of our partners went to go and, and become their general counsel, they would have, but we were, he and I were able to convince them to flip into Bermuda. And, and it wasn't that they just wanted to get access to cash, but Bermuda has 100 publicly listed companies or, or, or more, and so we're able to establish that. Hey, wait a second, this is a safe. We can always move into the new into into the U.S. later, uh, but but for the moment, you know, you can get all the access to capital that you need just by by being there. And so, you know, that happened. That's not necessary. That was a mature life sciences company. The type of client that Todd and I deal with um, more regularly is really hell bent on coming to the U.S. I think Tom's point was. Um um, the report just came out, right? Like, I think the top five companies hold or holding, you know, quarter of the yeah. cash. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Apple, Cisco, Google, Apple, Google, Google exactly, yeah, Microsoft. Exactly. They have, so, I mean, do you think, I guess your, your question around that was, yeah. do you think that that'll drive much more M&A? And I feel like people have been saying that for two years, but that's not necessarily true. So I think on, a, on the, I think that that's true on a broader level. I think the kind of clients that we're talking about generally are earlier stage clients that are, are really just trying to get things up and running. And actually they, they would be attractive. That's why we want to keep the IP rights out because they can always just sell their IP rights later mm. outside the U.S. Um, actually, let, we should talk about that because yeah. I, I think that maybe is a little bit of what you're hitting at. Which is, it's yeah. Well, it's the idea, right, that I, I, four or five years ago, six years ago, I think that um, a lot of um, uh, advisors and, and, and U.S. Um, venture, institutional venture, would have thought, hey, keep things simple, you know, flip into a Delaware corporation or just assign your IP into a, a new Delaware corporation and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was difficult. Fred and I, because I've, I've worked with Fred now over a decade, um, and you know he's he's deep on the international tax side. Fred and I would would make a uh, kind of a, a pitch to say, hey, maybe you know just because you need to become a U.S. company doesn't need necessarily mean you need to bring all your IP into the U.S. And the argument 
uh, I think sort of you would usually get back is, hey, the exit's ultimately going to be in the U.S. It's silly to bother planning anything. I mean, look, the fact is the U.S. acquirer is just going to want everything here in the U.S. Um, to your point with these larger tech companies, you know, most of them are global companies now. And so I think the idea of having left your IP rights outside of the U.S. actually can make you more attractive because that's something that these companies want to do. If you're Cisco, right, and and then the IP is already you know sitting offshore, sitting in yeah. Europe. That's great. Cisco has a, a hell of an operation. Yeah, I mean it. there is a tax cost, uh, and you know we come up with structures allowing them to utilize that foreign um, cash even when they're buying U.S. companies. But mm -hmm. they certainly prefer using the foreign cash uh, to buy foreign assets. And I mean SeedCap is de is demonstrating firsthand uh, that that there is a, a vibrant uh, uh, early stage uh, economy in software and life sciences and fintech and all the other ad tech. And so you know that's certainly going to be I think that that's a very good question so so what I'm thinking I mean going back a bit earlier into the journey so you're a founder you, you you're coming from Europe into the US how important is the legal intent uh, entity you're thinking about talent so I need to hire people from the US which involves payroll things like that mm. but I'm also moving some of my existing talent out to be part of the US office so we're talking you know, immigration yeah, immigration is key how, mm. how what, what do you need to be thinking through in advance of those sorts of moves well, I mean, actually, it's a good point you raised on the immigration because a lot of times that's going to drive, I think, the people's desire to maybe set up a U.S. entity straight away. Um, and I'm not the immigration specialist in our in our firm by by any measure, but I think the typical visa might be an E visa or an L visa, kind of by default. Um, and you know, with these types of entities, uh, having a U.S. Uh, a U.S. entity is going to be key. Right, and we certainly have better flexibility of equity compensation plans than than you do here in the UK, for instance. So we don't have to have a qualified share plan in order to issue that uh, tax free to and incent employees. So, but that gets really confusing, right? Yeah, because sure. if yeah. you set up a sister company or you set up a subsidiary, mm -hmm. you're not going to be offering you well, know you stock options, right? Parent, but the yeah. point is, you're not going to be offering mm -hmm. equity or options in your subsidiary or even the brother right. sister entity in the Correct. U.S. Yeah. that doesn't own the business. Yeah, that's what gets who's going to yeah. yeah who's going to want that? And so that that's another one of those sort of band aids that we have to do early on. Um, so you know, do, do you plans. do you offer yeah. options? You know, in the option plan of the foreign parent, do you offer? Uh, we've done the sort of phantom equity, mm -hmm. which uh, we, we sort of have an off the shelf plan which is really just a payout if there's a change of control, mm -hmm. but you're not really offering equity at the end of the day. I think that's one of the, the issues that gets really tricky. The other one is raising the early money, right? The early stage funds, um, let's say you come to the U.S. and you can get three or four or 500,000 bucks. <laughs> I would say that's not, uh, and we see that, but that's not enough money necessarily to sort of go all into the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. To say, I'm gonna flip to the U.S. because I got a check waiting for me for three or $400,000, so what do you do? Um, again, you're not going to be able to have your subsidiary or this sort of assetless um, foreign, I'm sorry, U.S. Uh, affiliate to sell securities or even convertible debt. So that's going to necessarily have to come from the foreign company. Yeah. I think the U.K. is interesting in that more and more U.S. investors, I think, have accepted the idea that um, investing or getting a note or whatever or ordinary share investment in a UK entity seems fine. Um, I don't. I, I think we we encounter much more resistance, um, frankly, from from companies that are based in countries that that aren't the UK for whatever reason. They've they, I think they've they've developed sort of a comfort zone for U.S. investors. 
Um, so it's not quite, I think, the automatic that uh, a lot of uh, founders from other companies have to. Uh, and, and just to, to touch with. on the convertible debt thing for a second, you know, convertible debt for a foreign company coming to the U.S. that might want to do a, a flip, um, typically uh, it becomes very complicated in converting into uh, either stock or convertible debt of the of the new parent. So it's something to be thought of as well. Cool, excellent. Well, I mean, maybe we should just, um, you know, settle on a few final words. Well, Tim, Tom, did you have one final question before we wrap up? Um, I think no. I think the kind of the, the discussion around whether to flip or not to flip. It seems like there's quite a few things to consider both sides, and it, it sounds like something which you know you really need to take a lot of advice and kind of like loop in your attorneys at the kind of earliest possible point. I mean, it, yeah, it does. It's not an expensive process. Uh, you know, I mean, we we're probably doing. 30 a year or two or three a month it seems like um, so, but so it, it's kind of you know we were able to get right to the point very quickly um, the typical cost piece about the uh, around this is is you know client what the client uh, how focused the client is um, I think you know right I mean I think if we have a focused client then it's a lot easier yeah process. I mean, we get some you know some pretty sophisticated people and the conversation goes pretty quickly um, but you know, it's not like people I think have to be fluent in international tax to make a decision, right? Yeah, that's, it's that's not part a, of what yeah. we're we're helping them out with. Yeah, it's less about tax than anything else. I think it's just if you're yeah. going to do it, then tax becomes an issue. Cool. Well, we always like to wrap things up uh, with you guys being able to shamelessly plug anything you want, uh, since we've been talking about uh, Foley and Martin to some extent. That is. Uh, an option, but perhaps you have other options that you'd like to talk about, charities, uh, events. Uh, your Charity kids. begins at home. Uh, t like I said, uh, Todd said earlier, we've been working together 10 years and you know, we somehow Todd fell into this inbound uh, practice where uh, I think it was you know, a lot of time he spent at plug and play. And, uh, and he's developed a very, very nice niche in the Valley and we're getting, I think we're getting as much or more inbound uh, exposure than, than anybody else I know. And I, we're gonna continue doing that to, as a team. And, and uh, you know, that's, I think, Foley and Lardner is a great place to do it. Yeah, so we're, we're both, we work out of the Palo Alto office. Um, we have a San Francisco office, so we get up there pretty frequently as well. But, um, you know, we work with companies from Latin America, uh, from Europe, from Asia, um, they're really I can't think yeah. of anywhere necessarily. I, actually, Africa. I've done a couple of things. Did, yeah, I did my first Mozambique yeah. deal with you as your client. Yeah. That was a fun. So, one. Uh, not too many continents no. left. Antarctica, maybe. No, no, and that list is growing. So. Excellent. Some, the next ice deal. It's well, ours. guys, thanks for joining us, yeah. and until uh, next time. Right, thank thanks. You. Thank you. Go right. seed camp. <laughs>